great series, hasn't it? Just the opportunity to take a look at what Jonah uh, teaches us and what God has shown us through the book of Jonah. And I'm grateful for Pastor Chris. And thanks for the way you've been praying for him. And I'm just grateful for the message that, 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 that he's brought us and just the challenge and the encouragement that he's given us to love people who aren't like us, to share grace with people who don't like us, and maybe even to, to share grace with the people that if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, you know, I don't know if I even like them. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. It's only four, only, only four chapters in the book of Jonah. And so we're on the last chapter today, and we're going to take a look at that uh, today. And as we begin, I just want to ask you a question. And really, if we're honest, um, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to find that, that the answer to this question is really hard. It's a really hard question to answer, and it's this. The question is really, it's a simple one, but it's a hard one to answer. Have you ever known someone, have you ever known someone that you just find it really hard to forgive? I bet when I asked the question that there was a name or a face that came to mind. Have you ever known someone in your life that you just find it difficult, hard, you might even use the word impossible, to forgive. In my own life, I can think of two or three people who, uh, in my past, they've just hurt me or they've hurt someone that I care about. Most of the time, they've hurt someone I care about. And I get angry when I think about them and I think I've forgiven them and then I see them in the community or I hear a story about something or I'm just reminded of what it is that they did to me or they did to someone else. And in the moment of that memory, it's like it all comes flooding back. And I find myself struggling with that need to forgive one more time. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Have you ever known someone that was just challenging or difficult to forgive? You know, there's some things that happen in the life of our, well, just in our lives that sometimes we might look at and go, I don't know that anybody could or should forgive that. Just this week in the news, really the past two weeks in the news, there's been the story of the doctor for the U.S. gymnastics team. His name is Larry Nasser, and some of the atrocities, some of the, the terrible things that he did to his team, the abuses of the women and the, and the, and the people that, that he treated. And he's been on trial for those crimes, and he's now suffering the consequences of his actions. This week, he was sentenced to 175 years in prison for the things that he's done. And during his sentencing, there were women that he abused that were able to stand up in the sentencing and speak to the sentence that, that he was about to have to suffer. The 175 years was just for those instances. There was actually a previous sentence for about 40 years for other things that he had done. This is not a good man. And he's the kind of person that, if I'm honest, I can look at and I can say, get him. God, just get him because he's done wicked, horrible, terrible, evil things to people. And if anybody deserves your forgiveness, I'm pretty sure it's not. And then I have to step back and be careful because the way I and my flesh, the way I want to fill in that blank, well, it's not the way, it's not the way I want that blank filled in for me. And isn't that the nature of grace? The nature of grace is we want everybody to give us grace, but we're really reluctant to give grace to others. Instead, what we really want to do is receive grace when we're wrong, but offer judgment or justice when somebody else is wrong. 
One of the women, the woman who, who stood to speak last, she was the one who actually got the case against Larry Norris started. Her name is Rachel Den Hollander. She spoke last at his sentencing. And one of the things that's interesting about Rachel is that she's a believer in Christ. And she would remember times that, that this man who abused her would carry his Bible around. And so supposedly he was supposed to be a person of faith, even though he didn't act like it. And one of the things that she said in her closing comments to this man, she's addressing him specifically in his sentencing. One of the things that she said is really remarkable. Take a look at this. This is just an incredible response to someone. She, she looks him in the eyes and she reads this statement. She said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. She's addressing the man who abused her, and she says, and it will be there for you. Grace, and it will be there for you. I pray you experiencing the soul crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. What a remarkable act of faith to be able to look the person who has abused you who has hurt you in ways that you can't even enumerate and be able to say something like that. I hope you can experience the soul-crushing weight of your guilt so that you turn to Christ in repentance and experience his grace and his forgiveness, which he has extended to you, and now I'm going to extend it to you too. How is it that anybody could possibly do that. It goes back to an understanding of forgiveness that I have. This is the way I understand forgiveness. Sometimes we understand forgiveness the wrong way. We think forgiveness is letting someone get away with it. We think forgiveness is forgetting. We think it's getting over it and moving beyond it. But forgiveness is actually more elegant than that. Forgiveness is more beautiful than that. Forgiveness at its heart is trusting someone into the hands of God. And at the point that I release that person into the hands of God, here's what I've said. I've said, God, because I forgive them, because I trust them into your hands, I believe that one of two things will happen. Either they will experience the grace, the same kind of grace that you've given me, or they will experience your justice. And God, whichever you choose, whichever you choose, I trust you. That's the essence of forgiveness. That's why someone right, like Rachel could look at the eyes of the person, in the eyes of the person who had abused her for years, and say, I can extend this forgiveness to you. I can do that. Why? Because I trust you in the hands of God. And in his hands, you'll receive grace or you'll receive justice. And what she knows in her heart, which is what Scripture testifies to, is the idea that when God extends his grace, the only basis on which he can extend his grace to us is that his justice has already been satisfied. His justice was satisfied on the cross at Calvary when Jesus Christ bore the burden, took the penalty and the payment for your sin and for mine and for all of those who would hurt us and for all of those we'll ever have to forgive. He took that penalty and payment into, his, into himself and God's justice was satisfied and it's only on the basis of that satisfaction of justice 
that God offers his grace to you and to me. And so one of the most authentic characteristics of a follower of Christ, one of the things that sets us apart from the rest of the world, what sets Christianity apart from so many other religions is this very elegant idea that we as the people of God are instruments of his grace and that we can offer people forgiveness just as we've been offered forgiveness ourselves. We can trust that person who's hurt us the most into the hands of God so that they will receive just as we have his grace or just as we might his justice. And what we see in the book of Jonah is really a remarkable story about a man who was one of God's chosen people who didn't like at all that idea. He just didn't like it all. Jonah chapter, I said turn to Jonah chapter 1, but let's look at Jonah, or Jonah chapter 4. Let's look at Jonah chapter 1 just quickly and just look at that verse, uh, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. This city of Nineveh, Nineveh was, a, Nineveh was a wicked city. It had been established by Nimrod. You see the city all the way back in Scripture, all the way back in the book of Genesis, near the, the, the story of the Tower of Babylon. And Nineveh was, a, was an Assyrian city, and there was nothing friendly between the Israelites and the Assyrians. The Assyrians and the Israelites, they hated one another. They fought one another. It wasn't long. It wasn't long till the nation of Assyria would rise up and attack Israel. They would attack Israel, they would take over Israel, and Israel would be a nation no more because of what the Assyrians did. There was no love lost between the Assyrians and the Ninevites. And so when Jonah gets this call from God to go to the city of Nineveh to tell them of God's coming judgment, Jonah's thinking, I don't like those people. Those people don't like me. Those people aren't like me, and I'm not going to do it. And so he ran, and Chris, I, haven't, I don't have this picture to show you, but each of the past three weeks, he's shown you the picture of how far away Tarshish was from Nineveh, 2,500 miles in one direction to run away from the message God had to deliver, or 500 miles in the right direction to go deliver the message that God called him to deliver. And in the middle of all of that, Jonah steps up and says, I would rather die than give grace to these people. I would rather die than deliver to these people this message that God has for me. He jumps on the ship. And you know the story. He jumps on the ship. The storm comes. The people ask, what do we have to do? The people on the boat, they're scared for their lives. What can we do to overcome this storm? And Jonah basically says, well, just kill me. Just throw me into the water and let me drown. He never imagined, I don't believe, that a fish would come and, and swallow him. I don't think he ever imagined that that would happen. God, I'd rather die than forgive this person. I'd rather die than deliver your message. But God had another plan. And that's where we, that's where we understand that he provided this fish. And, and each week we've talked about how it's amazing that people stumble over the idea that this big fish would swallow a guy. And three days later, this guy would, would, would be able to step back out of the mouth. and would be, would be spit up on the shores so that he could go deliver this message. We stumble over that, but we, but we believe the resurrection. It's almost like we do in our daily lives every day. We look at God and we say, God, forgive all of my sin. I trust you for eternal salvation. I trust you to take me to heaven when I die, but I'm not certain... If I can trust you with my kids, 
we're having some troubles, and I just don't know if I can trust you with doing the right thing with them. Because God, I trust you for eternal salvation. I trust you to go, that you're going to take me to heaven. I trust you that your resurrection was real, but we stumble over this idea that, man, God says our finances work a particular way, and if we just trust him, they'll work the way he intends. And then it gets actually more personal and more relevant. God, I trust you. I don't know if I can trust this fish story, but I trust that you've resurrected from the dead. Well, so maybe because of the resurrection, I can trust that the, that the fish story is real. Maybe I can trust because Jesus believed it, that I should believe it. And, and maybe because I trust you, Jesus, to forgive my sin, maybe I can trust you to give me the ability to forgive someone else's sin. Maybe I can trust that your grace or your justice, whichever you choose, God, maybe I can trust that you're enough. You know, I think... I think Jonah's message to us is a warning to us that we could stand in the same place that Jonah stands. We could be the people who receive God's grace but refuse to share God's grace. Actually, Jonah's story is just a picture of the nation of Israel. All the way back at Abraham, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And all the way back at that, at that time, God basically gave Abraham the family business. And here's what the family business was. God says to Abraham, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And because I'm your God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to represent me to all the nations. I want you to be a nation of priests and priests to the nations. What the world knows about who God is, Abraham, your job is to share that with the world. I want you to share that with everybody. I've chosen you to accomplish this task. This is the family business that you would represent me to the world and that the world would come to know me because of your testimony. Yet the children of Israel, they heard that phrase, we are God's chosen people, and instead of allowing that to help them understand their their chosen purpose, that we're to go out and represent God well and share his love with the nations of the world, they took that as a racist statement, that somehow God has made us better than others, that for some reason God has looked to us and said, well, you're my chosen people, and they're not. And so instead of representing God well and sharing his mercy, sharing his grace, sharing his love, more specifically sharing his message, instead Instead, they held that in to themselves, and in a racist way, they began to practice their faith and not share the family business. They, they, they didn't pass down the family business in the right way, and so Jonah, here he is, trying desperately to be a great Jew, but failing miserably at being a great follower of Christ. I wonder how many of us in the room today are trying desperately to be a great person, but failing miserably at being a great follower of Christ. It's why the challenge that Chris has given us for this year is so relevant, that we would go out from this place and that we would share the gospel, that we would clearly share the gospel with as many people this year as we are old. So if you're 16 years old, share it with 16 people sometime over the course of this year. If you're 86 years old, share it sometime over the course of this year with 86 people. I'm 46 years old. I've got a lot of work to do. I've got, I've got a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of time to make up there. But can we one-on-one share the gospel with people who aren't like us, with people who don't like us, and maybe even with the people that we don't like. Can we do that? Could we we run the risk at the end of this year of looking back over the course of our year and realizing all year long, I've worked really hard to be a good person. I've worked really hard to be a good student, to be a good businessman. I've worked really hard to be a good dad, but I've I've failed in my mission of being an authentic, a good 
follower of Christ. You see, that's the message that we've inherited. We've inherited the family business, that we would represent Christ to the world and that we would share his love and his grace with everyone that God brings along our path. And so now we get to Jonah chapter 4 and we see Jonah's response. In Jonah chapter 2, he's in the belly of the whale and he repents. In Jonah chapter 3, he goes to the city and he cries out to the city. He says, here's the message. He's not very enthusiastic about it. Here's the message. But the people of Nineveh, they react in a remarkable way. They actually repent. Actually, their repentance is so fervent that they, they go a little bit out of the bounds. I mean, they just kind of go crazy with it. They don't just repent. They, they rip their clothes. They put themselves in sackcloths. And the king commands that, that not only do you have to wear sackcloth, but man, your, your cows need to wear sackcloth. And your dogs need to wear sackcloth. They just kind of go around the bend in terms of, of their public you know, repentance of all that stuff. But the point is that their heart was... Was, was cut to the quick. They felt the soul-crushing weight of their sin, and they responded to God in a way that was penitent. As a result of it, they re- received God's grace. And remember what God's grace is. God's grace is receiving from him something that we don't deserve. And God's mercy is what happens when God withholds from us something we do deserve. We deserve God's justice. We deserve his punishment. And it's in his mercy that he doesn't give us that. It's in his grace that he gives us something completely different. And now we get to Jonah chapter 4, and we see Jonah. He's the prophet of God. He's the messenger. He's the ambassador from God to the city of Nineveh. And you would think that a preacher, after there's 120,000 people in this city, you would think that a preacher preaches, and after he preaches, 120,000 people respond to the message, yes, that's exactly what I'd want to do. I know as a preacher, I know I'd, be, I'd be jazzed about that. I'd be excited about it. But Well, let's look at what Jonah does. Stand up with me and let's stand in the honor of reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. We'll see Jonah's response. And I think sometimes because we struggle to forgive, I think our response is very much the same as Jonah's. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased Jonah? (laughs) That the Ninevites repented. They responded to the call of God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry, so he prayed to the Lord and said, now when we say pray, I just got to pause for a second. Normally when we say pray, we're thinking, oh dear God, please help us with this, or please help us with that, and it's kind of a sweet, kind conversation between us and God. This is not what this kind of prayer is from Jonah. This is a complaint. Jonah has gone to the complaint department of heaven to say, I'd like to tell you something, God. You did this wrong, and I'm mad about it. So here we are in verse 2. So Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I still was in my country? Therefore, in other words, that's why I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know... I'm going to pause right here for a second. You've got to notice what Jonah knows. Is this something that you know today? For I know... God, that you are gracious and you are merciful. You are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver, from his, to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. 
But as morning dawned and the next day, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Jonah still hasn't been persuaded by the grace of God. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, It is right for me to be angry even to death. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their, le- and their left and, much, and their much livestock? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. We have to capture this idea. We have to, we have to be able to capture this and, 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 and let this idea come to life in us. There's no more authentic measure of who we are as followers of Christ than our ability to offer the forgiveness of God to people who aren't like us, people who don't like us, and maybe even the people we don't like. It's that opportunity we have to release someone into the hands of God so that they can receive either his grace, just as we have, or they can receive his justice just as many, many others, others have. There's some things inside this passage that I want us to see, and really that this entire book shows us. The book of Jonah teaches us about God's patience. The book of Jonah teaches us about God's patience. Now, I think when we say the word patience that oftentimes we get confused because there are two extremes that we go to when we think of patience. And and really, they have nothing to do with what biblical patience really looks like. One extreme we go to when we think of patience is we, we insert, instead of the word patience, we insert the word tolerance. And we think, okay, God's just going to tolerate our sin. We're just, we should be tolerant of one another. We should look at people and tell them that their lifestyle, that their choices, that the outcome of what they're going to do, well, it's just going to be okay because we're going to tolerate that. That's not really what patience does. On the opposite end of that, sometimes instead of patience, instead of inserting tolerance for patience, what we, what we insert is judgment. We insert some kind of moral superiority. We look at people and we say, well, look at me, I'm doing it right, and look at you, you're doing it wrong. We look at ourselves and from everyone else, when we get something wrong, we expect grace But when somebody else gets it wrong, when anybody else gets it wrong, we look at them and expect them to experience justice. Because why? Because somewhere in there, instead of patience, we've inserted our own moral superiority. We've inserted our own judgment. And what God says here is instead, I don't want you to insert tolerance or judgment. Instead, I want you to insert patience. And what we see in the book of Jonah is we see his patience. Remember what Jonah's message was. He says to the Ninevites, you should repent or in 40 days judgment will fall. Judgment's going to fall on the city of Nineveh in 40 days. What was God doing in those 40 days? What was he doing? Was he tolerating the wickedness? The wickedness of Nineveh was so great. They were such Evil. When it says the, Nineveh, the, the wickedness of the Ninevites rose to heaven, what that really means is there were so many people praying to God, please stop the Ninevites. Please stop them. Please make them stop. Some of them may have been praying, God, make them suffer. Some of them may have been praying, God, forgive them or help them to repent. But all of them were praying, God, These people are so wicked, please do something about it. Do you think God was just being tolerant of that in those 40 days? 
He wasn't. And on the other side of that, well, he'd put a deadline on his justice. His justice was coming. It was coming, and he just wanted to warn the people. So in those 40 days, what he was practicing was patience. In James chapter 1, the Bible tells us that we should let patience have its perfect work, that we could be found perfect and complete. And in the book of James, that word for patience in the original Greek there is the word hupomeno. If you do a, a word study on, the, on that Greek word, what it literally means is to remain under to remain under this circumstance until God has the opportunity to let his work unfold. So it begs the question, what circumstance are you in right now? What person are you dealing with right now that's making your life miserable, that's hurting you, that's harming you, that's, that's someone that you need to forgive? Maybe they're not even in your life anymore. You're under that circumstance. And for those 40 days, God practiced his patience. He remained under that circumstance, both with the Ninevites and with Jonah for the purpose of allowing his grace to unfold in their lives. Rachel, in her words to the man who was her, who was her abuser, says, I will practice patience. I will not tolerate it. Your actions are wrong. She called evil, evil. But I also won't stand in moral superiority over you. I will simply call your evil, evil, and declare to you that just as I need God's forgiveness, so do you. I have felt the soul-crushing weight of my own sin, and I hope and pray that you feel it too. Why? Because I'm judging you? No, 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 no. Because God stands in judgment over you. And now... They have remained under that situation. They've remained under that circumstance in patience. They continue to do that in the hope, in the hope that God's grace, that God's work will unfold in their lives. What we see in Jonah chapter 4 is we, and, and the story of Jonah, we see that, that God is teaching us about patience. We see that he gave a second chance to a servant who was selfish. We see that God gave a second chance to a servant who was selfish. We see that God was willing to forgive people who did not deserve it. We see that God was willing to forgive people who did not deserve it. That's, isn't that what Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says? That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The next thing we see in this passage and the things we see in the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah teaches us about God's provision. We see that God's that in the book of Jonah, that we see that God, that he teaches us about his provision. He provides discipline, he provides discomfort, and he provides a way out. God always provides for us discipline, discomfort, and a way out. Look at what he did in Jonah. First off, in verse 2, So Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord God, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, and I know that you are gracious and merciful, God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Well, how did Jonah know that? Well, he knew it because he'd experienced it. <laughs> He'd just spent three days in the belly of a fish. He'd just gotten spit up on the shore of the, on the, on the, shore of the waters and, and walked out alive when he thought he was going to die. He'd just experienced the relentless love of Christ. Isn't that something that you'd like to experience? The forgiveness that comes from the relentless, the divine affection of your heavenly Father 
saying, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to make a way out. God disciplines us. And that's exactly what he did with Jonah when he put him in the belly of the fish. That's exactly what he did whenever he allowed that bush to grow up around Jonah as he sits on the side. It's, it's almost like Jonah got up on the side of a mountain and he says, this is, this is my seat for the end of the world. I'm just going to watch and see what happens. I'm hoping the Ninevites that they don't repent because I've got a front row seat to the end of the world right here. He gets uncomfortable. God grows a, a plant over his head. God takes the plan away, and the whole reason he does that is because he wants Jonah to understand that we're all his people. We've all failed, and it is in God's right, and it's in his purview to give us that grace and that mercy and that loving kindness as he chooses and how he chooses. And for us, it's our job to deliver the message. It's our job to do the hard work of that patience to remain under, not to tolerate not to stand in moral superiority, but to simply say, I trust God with you. And I'm going to give God time. I'm going to give you time for his grace or his justice to unfold in your life and in mine. The first thing we see is that the book of Jonah teaches us about God's patience. We also see that the book of Jonah teaches us about God's provision. The last thing we see is that the book of Jonah teaches us about God's pursuit. This is such a beautiful idea, a beautiful concept, that God is at work in the lives of people who love him. God's at work in the lives of people who love him. But you know what else? God's at work in the lives of people who don't love him. Isn't that the essence of John 3.16? For God so loved the world. When we say that God loved the world, that's the broadest sense of that word, world. It's that idea that there are people in this world, and if we were honest, it's you and me. People in this world who looked to God and we rejected him, and we rebelled against him, and we abused him, and we spitefully used him. And just like everyone else in the rest of the world, we've rejected him, yet God says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He loved those people who didn't like him and who weren't like him. And he provided his grace for us. This incredible pursuit that the book of Jonah teaches us that God pursues you with a divine affection that's relentless. He never stops pursuing you. That's one of the remarkable things about who Jesus is. Every time I watch in the life of Jesus, what I see in the life of Jesus is I see him meet people where they are in order to constantly help them take their next step of faith. That's the way Jesus functions. He meets people where they are in order to help them take their next step of faith. For someone like Paul, Paul was called Saul before he became a believer. He was a terrorist to the church. He was a murderer. He was someone who was given the authority to abuse Christians. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus met him where he was so that Paul could take his next step of faith. What was that? On the, on the road to Damascus, he looks at Paul and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul has this remarkable conversion experience where he realizes that the people of God that he's hurting are really just that. They are the people of God. And so now Paul is able to take his next step of faith, and he becomes the man who writes the majority of the New Testament. Galatians chapter 1, he tells his story, and it's an incredible story because the churches in that time were hearing only that, that Paul was this man 
who persecuted Christians. But Paul says in his story in Galatians, he says, and they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us. Now he preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And Paul says, and they glorified God in me. God always meets people right where they are in order to help them take their next step of faith. Maybe that's you today. Maybe today you came into this room and you've not placed your faith in Christ. You don't know whether you trust him or not, but you do know this. You know you need his forgiveness. You know that you need the strength to be able to forgive someone else. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're someone who needs to receive that challenge to share the gospel, to be an instrument of grace in the lives of people who aren't like you, who don't like you, and maybe even the people that you don't like. Maybe you're a believer in Christ and your next step of faith is to leave from this place to go forgive someone or offer forgiveness, the forgiveness of God to someone to share the gospel with them. There's another remarkable story in the New Testament. It's the story of Lazarus. When Lazarus got sick and he died, the Bible tells us that Jesus had some friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And every time he and the disciples would go through their town, they would stop and stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They would stay in their home. Mary loved to sit at the feet of Jesus and just listen and learn because she just, she just loved that. Martha was a servant. She was a worker. She loved to feed people. She loved to take care of people. And so she was always up serving. And every time the disciples and Jesus were in her home, they were taken care of. They always had something to eat. They always had a good time. And Lazarus was just a great friend to Jesus. And so while Jesus and the disciples are out and away, they're not near the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. While they're out and away, Lazarus gets sick. And so through their experience, Mary and Martha, through their experience with Jesus, they knew just what to do. I know what we should do. We should call Jesus. We should tell him Lazarus is sick. He'll come heal him. And so that's exactly what they do. And Jesus' response in Luke is such an interesting response. In Luke, it gets to this, this, this passage where Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. And the verse says, because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for two more days. Isn't that a strange response? My, one of my best friends is sick. And his sisters know that I can fix it. They know that I can help. I'm three hours away. I'm two hours away. I'm far enough away that it would take me some time to get there, but not too long to get there. And because I love them, and I hear that he's sick, I don't get up immediately go. I just stay right where I am. That sounds strange. That doesn't sound like love. I mean, there's this moment in Scripture where a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, would you heal my slave, my servant? And Jesus says, sure, show me where they are. And the, and the Roman centurion says, no, wait a minute. I'm a man under authority, and this sickness is under your authority. You don't have to come heal him. All you have to do is say it, and he'll be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus spoke. The servant was healed. Couldn't he have done the same thing with Lazarus? It doesn't matter that you're a couple of days away. It doesn't matter that you're a few hours away. Couldn't he have done that? But he didn't. Luke is clear. Because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for two more days. And in that time, Lazarus died. That seems strange. Why did he do that? Well, because Jesus always meets us right where we are in order to help us take our next step of faith. And for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this experience would change their faith forever. When Jesus finally shows up, Martha, well, Mary is so distraught, she's so grieved that she can't even leave the house. And Martha, she comes running to Jesus and said, Jesus, if only you'd been here, you could have fixed this. Why didn't you come? You could have fixed this. But even in the middle of that, 
she expresses her faith. But even now, God, I've, I've come to believe that you're the Christ, that you can do something about this. And they go to the tomb, and Jesus reassures her. He reassures her with a verse that's become famous. Jesus looks to Martha and says, I want you to understand this. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And we know the end of the story. He steps up. They roll away the the stone from the tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus comes forth, and Lazarus rises from the dead. And from that moment forward, the faith of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was never the same. Jesus meets you right where you are in order to help you take your next step of faith. His pursuit of you is complete. His desire for you is good. And the most authentic thing we can do as believers is share that message of grace with the world around us. For us to become instruments of grace in the lives of everyone. Not simply those we like and those who are like us. But everyone that God gives us the opportunity to share with. So it begs the question this morning, where are you? If Jesus is going to meet you right where you are to help you take your next step of faith, where are you? Are you a believer who needs to step up to that challenge to become an instrument of grace in your community and with the world around you? Do you need to maybe come this morning to this altar in just a moment when we have our invitation time? Do you need to come to this altar and begin praying specifically for that person that God's brought to your mind that needs to be the first person that you share the gospel with? Maybe you need to come to this altar as a believer and offer forgiveness to that person who has hurt you the most. Maybe you've already offered forgiveness to them and, well... Their names come up again, and you need to forgive them one more time. Maybe instead of coming to the altar as a believer in Christ, as a carrier of his grace, maybe instead of during the invitation coming to pray, you need to leave the room and get out your phone and make a call. Set up a meeting. Go have coffee with someone. Maybe that's your next step of faith. Or maybe for you this morning... Maybe you're like the city of Nineveh. You can't imagine why anybody would ever forgive you. You know what you've done. You know what's in your heart. You know what you've experienced from other people, and you've seen the, the, the ire. You've seen the, 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 the hatred and the meanness that you've experienced from people, and you know in your heart of hearts that the reason why they treat you the way you treat, they treat you isn't just because they're mean. It's because... To some degree, if you're honest, you go, oh, I've kind of brought this on. This is because of the way I act. This is because of the words I say. Maybe you recognize, like the Ninevites recognize, you really have sinned against God. And this morning, you're experiencing the soul-crushing weight of the guilt of that. Can I tell you something? Jesus died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. He came to offer you forgiveness. And this morning, he's meeting you right where you are. It's no accident that you're here today. He's meeting you right where you are in order to help you take your next step of faith. And in this moment, you could place your faith in Christ. In this moment, you could trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. In this moment, you could receive the mercy that he's offered to you. I hope that you'll do that today. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, when I say amen to this prayer, if you need to place your faith in Christ, come to this altar and take the hands of one of these men and just say, hey, I'd like to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You could even make it more simple than that. You could just say, I need to be forgiven. 
If you're a believer in Christ, maybe you need to come to this altar and pray for the person that you need to forgive or the person that you need to share the gospel with. But the altar will be open as we sing. Don't simply sit there idly by waiting for something to happen. Jesus has met you where you are today and he's challenging you to take your next step of faith. Follow him.